Good morning, fellowship. Welcome to worship here in person. And those of you gathered with us online, perhaps in this moment, or maybe catching up later today or later this week. Every time we gather for worship, we root ourselves in God's salvation story and in the rhythms of the church calendar. Today is the final, seventh and final Sunday of the Easter season. Just this past Thursday marked 40 days since Jesus' resurrection. It was Ascension Day. And this is the Sunday that we celebrate, that Jesus ascended into heaven where he is seated now at the right hand of God, which is a position of power and authority. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may find mercy and grace in our time of need. This is no small thing, friends. Daily we are reminded of the brokenness and sin that has wrecked our world and even in ourselves. To have the king of the universe who knows our human suffering firsthand, interceding and acting in authority on our behalf. This is good news. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we are being made new. Our world will be made new. Sin and death do not have the final say. And one day, all will be made right, and Christ will rule and reign unhindered. Our God is on the throne. Would you stand and let's sing in praise to the risen and ascended Lamb of God this morning. with many Glory's 
Let's pray together. You are so worthy, O God, worthy of all our praise and adoration, worthy of honor and glory. And we yearn to be a people whose words and very lives reflect our love for you and desire to give you praise. Yet so often our words do little to build up your beloved people, and instead they are often used to tear down. Our words tear at the dignity of another when we reduce them into a belief or ideology. Our words tear the hearts of those we love when we use them for our own selfish gain. 
Our words tear the humanity of others when we objectify them to our first judgments of their appearance. Our words tear at the fullness of another when we make empty promises or trite comments to them. Forgive us, Lord. We confess we do not treat our words with the care and respect they deserve. We yearn with the psalmist that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God. Lord, we have witnessed the power of words can have to shape worlds in both positive and negative ways. We think this week especially of the people of Uvalde, Texas, who are dealing with the aftermath of the worst of humanity. For the victims and for the children and the many folks in our community even, uh, and all the way across the country, who are dealing with that tragedy. We also think this weekend in particular of the high cost of war for the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and numerous other battles across our world and even the ones our country has taken part in over the years. And especially, we pray for the lives that have been lost in the midst of them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers in this moment of silence for those lives that have been lost. God, may we be a people whose words create life, spur others to live in faithfulness to you and in love and care for this world and all its inhabitants. We yearn that for ourselves first, but also for this whole world over. In that spirit, we offer this prayer from the words that we find on the screen. Lord, open our eyes to see you in our midst. Lord, open our ears to hear your voice. Lord, renew our minds to carry your truth. Lord, break our hearts to love like you love. Lord, move our feet to join in your kingdom work. Lord, open our mouths to sing your praise. Amen. for 
siblings in Christ, it is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. Would you share a sign of that peace with your neighbor? And those of you in the online chat, share a sign of peace. Very good. It's fun to see you all greeting one another in the new kind of post-COVID awkward of handshake or fist bump or hug or I don't really know when we get confused with one another, but it's good to be together this morning uh, and the Lord be with you. It's beautiful weather this morning and we give thanks. This is the time that we look forward to together here in West Michigan. Uh, all winter long. Glad to be with you. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. In fact, last week, if you were with us, we had a great reminder of that mission and how it has had a long-standing and central place in our life together here at Fellowship Church where we heard from Pastor Jim Barr, the Reverend Most Righteous, and uh, Pastor Ken Ericks, the doctor, uh, as they told the story of, of how we have kind of lived into that mission statement here at Fellowship Church. I was also delighted this past week at a tennis match to run into someone not from Fellowship Church, but when they heard the name Fellowship, they knew of us and particularly of our mission and how you all are living it out in our community and that's a beautiful thing when we have this mission in our hearts and in our lives that it's recognized by others in the community. It's what we want to be and do together. So thanks for joining us in that. Today marks a new beginning in our life together, and we're particularly excited to have the Reverend Tierra Marshall with us officially for today. Come on. This is really good, and uh, thanks for welcoming her. After this service, there will be a chance to meet and greet out in the atrium, and you're invited to stick around and have coffee and uh, a time to at least say hello to Tierra as we begin our new life together. Last week, we uh, want to say thank you for those of you who joined us in the youth fundraiser. And if you missed out, uh, you can still join in. There is in the atrium out there a wall of envelopes, which you may have already seen or you'll see on your way out and it is a way of uh, kind of sharing the load, if you will, of the cost of uh, summer experiences, formational experiences for our middle and high school students, and then other retreats as well. The envelopes have numbers on them, like 47 or 16 or something like that. And you grab the envelope and fill it with that amount of money, and there's 100 of them all together, and it's a nice way of us together uh, helping uh, pay the way for these kids to have these wonderful experiences this summer. So you can grab one of those and then return it uh, uh, with funds in it afterwards uh, in weeks to come. 
Also looking forward, next Sunday is Pentecost. We'll join with uh, Christians around the globe to celebrate this great day where we recognize the sending of the Holy Spirit on the Christian community, on the believers. And uh, at Fellowship Church, we have a tradition of wearing red on Pentecost. Maybe you know this already and look forward to doing so, or if not, I'm happy to inform you. It's not like St. Patrick's Day, however, where you get pinched if you don't wear red, but you are invited to wear red next week as we celebrate Pentecost together. And then last but not least, there's a sign-up uh, just outside the main sanctuary entrance there where you could join in the work of this church uh, for a thing called Meet Up and Eat Up. It's been happening for years. It's a way uh, to join in fellowship with some of our nearby neighbors and uh, to love them. There's some dates and sign-up opportunities just out there. Again, it's a couple weeks throughout the summer, and uh, we'd love to have your help to join in on that thing called Meet Up and Eat Up. As we continue in worship this morning, I simply want to remind you that yet another way that we join together and be the church together is through the giving of our tithes and offerings, which you can do uh, today as you exit the sanctuary uh, in the offering plates at the back. You can also do online, uh, digitally, and we do so as uh, part of our uh, discipleship unto Jesus, where we gather not only and sing songs and pray prayers and hear sermons together, but we also uh, uh, give from our wallets in, in terms of joining in ministry together. This time, I invite you to continue in worship through song. Out of us. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that in Christ you are always making us new. And by your Holy Spirit, you are always conforming us to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that um, as we turn toward the scriptures, as we prepare to study, then that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would um, help us to learn um, of you, help us to hear your voice. Um, Lord, we pray that you would guide us into your grace and your truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name's Tiara. I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and it feels amazing to be able to say that finally. <laughs> um, and uh, this morning, I just get to kind of hop into a sermon series that started several weeks ago, a sermon series that we're calling Made New. Uh, and the basic idea behind this sermon series is that in Christ, in the resurrected Christ, we are made new. Uh, as Paul says, we are new creations in Christ. And so um, how precisely does that happen? Uh, that is the question that is before us. That's the question that we've been holding in our minds over the last several weeks. How precisely are we made new? And to answer that question um, today, as as we did in previous weeks, we turn directly to the scriptures. And so if you have your Bibles or you have your bulletins, we will be in James chapter three. You can turn with me there. Uh, so hear the word of the Lord from James chapter three. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by very strong winds, they are guided by a tiny rudder, a small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire itself, set on fire by hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can someone say short straw? Uh, <laughs> so one of my favorite shows um, is a show called The Good Place. How many of you have seen The Good Place? A couple of you are willing to admit it. Uh, I should, disclaimer, when I say something's my favorite show, I mean I started it, and at some point I will eventually finish it, but this one I have not finished yet. Uh, so The Good Place, um, the basic premise of the show is that Eleanor, the main character played by Kristen Bell, she wakes up in the good place. The good place is like non-Christian version of the afterlife for good people. As she wakes up in the good place, uh, and the good place is being run by Michael um, or Ted Danson, not Morgan Freeman, as you might suspect. Uh, and, so, uh, and she knows that she's sitting across from Michael and he's kind of orienting her to the good place that she led pretty terrible life, probably shouldn't be, definitely shouldn't be in the good place. Uh, but over, so over the course of the first season, she essentially tries to learn how to be a good person so that eventually she can deserve to be in the good place. Now, second disclaimer, the good place is a super deep dive into the mind of a non-Christian, um, someone who just kind of had this idea, Michael Schur, uh, he's a writer um, and a creative out in Hollywood. He, uh, he actually wrote the show Parks and Rec or wrote for the show Parks and Rec, so you might remember him for that. Uh, but he um, essentially 
essentially, he describes himself as an extreme rule follower. Um, and he can't bear the idea as an extreme rule follower that in the end, like there's nothing, like there's no afterlife, which basically in his mind means that all of those people who had like 11 items in that grocery checkout line where you're only supposed to have 10 or less, they get away with it. And all the people who did and said the things that were beneficial to others, did and said the right things, they don't eventually get rewarded in the end. And so he can't abide that. He thinks it's untenable. And he comes up with this, like, like it's almost like a video game version of the afterlife, as in if you do and say the right things, you get enough points and you get to go to where? The good place. And if you don't get enough points because you don't say and do the right things, you go to the bad place. Yeah. So <laughs> you guys get the basic idea right there. So, um, so as you can imagine, you meet some pretty interesting characters over the course of the show, like Eleanor, but also like Chidi, who's my favorite character on the show. Uh, Chidi is a moral philosopher, and he is the person that Eleanor enlists to help her learn how to be a good person, because, of course, moral philosopher would have the answer to that. Uh, but then you also meet people like Gianni. Uh, Gianni is also a really interesting character. In fact, uh, when you meet him, he's a monk who has taken a vow of silence even into eternity. He will never speak again. Uh, and over the course of the, the episodes that he appears in, and uh, he's, he comes off as like this wise, good, all-knowing. I mean, there's something about his silence that just oozes wisdom in every single scene. Uh, but it's not until he breaks his silence that we realize that Gianni is also faking it in the good place. <laughs> because Gianni is a drug dealer from Florida, uh, <laughs> not a monk. <laughs> and if you've watched the show, you know that he is absolutely not a beacon of wisdom or knowledge or really anything that involves thinking, for that matter. <laughs> I guess it's true what they say. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is esteemed intelligent, according to Proverbs. Uh, so what do we do with our words? What do we do with our speech? And does it even matter? Does what we do with our speech matters? And is, as Christ followers, does, is it the case that if we just simply avoid swearing and avoid going over whatever the threshold is for gossip, and, and if we avoid name-calling it, that pretty much covers it, like we've done our due diligence with our speech? Now, well, James seems to think it's a smidge more nuanced than that. Uh, James begins this portion of his letter by warning that not everyone should aspire to be teachers. Now, you might read that within the context of our very reformed Christian world with this very formal process for ordination of ministers of word and sacrament and elders and theologians and conclude that this text really only applies to a handful or maybe a couple handfuls of people in this room. However, during the first century, which is when this letter was written, uh, there was not yet a formal ordination process for teachers. And in fact, the process of teaching um, in the early church, which was based on the model of the synagogue, was actually a lot more collaborative. It was a lot more participatory. You might even say it was a lot more democratic. Sure, to be a teacher was certainly a matter of training, and we see this in the life of Paul. Paul was trained under Gamaliel. Um, he learned the law of his ancestors, he tells us, in Acts 22. Uh, so it was certainly a matter of training. It was also a matter of a charismatic gift, not charismatic like charming, although I'm sure that was helpful, but charismatic gift, um, a gift of the Holy Spirit given as a gift, not just to the person, but primarily to the church for the, uh, the upbuilding and the equipping of the church. But there's something else that we begin to see in, especially leading up to the first century and in the first century around uh, the gathering, that the synagogue, this model that the church was built on, um, the synagogue was also a little bit more democratic. The synagogue actually belonged uh, not to a denomination, not to a centralized group of leaders of synagogues, but to the community 
that built the synagogue, to the family even, that built the synagogue. It would be like in Holland, a group of people getting together and starting a church. I don't know, something like that. Uh, so it belonged to that group of people. Um, and teaching within those situations was a lot more collaborative. In fact, we read something like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul says to uh, the church there, um, each of you, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And I get it. All of you have something to say. All of you have something to offer. But if you could just like not all speak at the same time, if you could just like allow each other to take turns, you get the sense that there's something a little bit more dialogical happening, that they're actually talking to each other in the gathering rather than all of them, one person speaking to the entire group. So teaching and the larger worship gathering is a lot more collaborative, participatory, dialogical, democratic. Um, everyone plays a part. Everyone has something to offer. Um, everyone has something to say, which sounds actually, if we think about it, a lot more like our own time, a lot more like the 21st century that we live in. I'm a millennial, um, an elder millennial, or some people would say a, a geriatric millennial. I think I like elder better. Uh, <laughs> and my generation is responsible for giving the world the tweet. Um, and I can't decide if I'm proud of that or ashamed of that, maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> but, but my generation gave the world the tweet. Now, if you don't know, a tweet is a 280-character 280 uh, microblog or like this little tiny status update that you send to your group of followers. Um, it, Back in my day, tweets were 140 characters. That meant you only got 20 to 40 words, depending on how many syllables you use in your words. Uh, so really, really, really dark time to be alive. Uh, so according to, <laughs> according to one count, there were, um, best estimate, something like 6,000 tweets a second. 6,000 tweets a second. Um, and according to the same person who's tracking this, 500 million tweets sent per day. Uh, something like 200 billion tweets uh, sent over the course of a year. Uh, read this on the internet, so that means it's true. Uh, so uh, there's something like, now you're probably thinking, well, you know, that's just a tiny subset, you know, of the world. Like, not everybody's on Twitter. And you're right. There's something like 7.7 .7 billion people on Earth in existence, like right now. And 4.62 billion of them have accounts on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, TikTok, um, all the, the podcasts, I mean, millions of episodes of podcasts um, and other platforms. Billions of tidbits and words uh, being sent into the world each year. Um, in an age, I think, when most everyone, most everyone um, that you know is on social media, most everyone you know is listening to podcasts um, being flooded through their ears, uh, most everyone you know um, is either on YouTube or has their own YouTube channel, uh, when words are plentiful, when opinions on every hot-button issue under the sun are legion, and when public speech, not just in the social media sphere, but even within our own lives, sitting across the fence or on the porch with a neighbor, even and especially in a time when public speech is participatory and collaborative and expected and as democratic as it was maybe even in the first century, might James have a word for us about control of the tongue or about taming our speech or about disciplining our words? What does it even mean to control or to bridle, the word that James uses a lot, to bridle the tongue? 
Adele Calhoun, she's the curator of a book I've, I've loved for, for years, the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. I believe our spiritual fitness group uses that text along with a few others. Uh, she gives us actually a few ideas. Um, she says, uh, this is probably the only time that I will ever front load you with an application. <laughs> so she says very wisely, uh, what it looks like to control the tongue is things like speaking the truth in love or not speaking out of our anger and irritability or using our words to encourage and build others up. Maybe not yelling, cursing, or belittling others, refusing to take part in gossip, slander, and backbiting, curbing half-truths used to create impressions about ourselves or manage our image, using our verbal and body language, this is my favorite, our verbal and body language in a godly way, even on I-96, um, addressing, <laughs> addressing your critical nature, uh, the critical way that you speak about yourself, the critical way that you speak about your loved ones, the critical way that you speak about others. Pretty easy, straightforward list, right? Like all of us can just do this sermon over. We can all just enact this list perfectly. If we can just never speak out of anger or irritability, I, I think we'll, we'll nail it. Like if we can only speak encouraging words that build up the people around us, like that pretty much resolves the problem. If even when we're angry, we're driving on I-96, it's rush hour, and the person in front of you is driving 25 miles per hour, and it's May, and there's construction zones in a million places, if we could just only use our words and our hands in a godly way, right? <laughs> like that should pretty much take care of it. So why don't we do this, is the question. Like, why, why do we struggle to discipline our speech? Why do we all stumble into sin with our words, as James says? Well, I think James is actually taking a cue from Jesus, who says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In fact, James also seems to be echoing a theme throughout Jewish wisdom literature about controlling one's speech. For instance, in Proverbs 15, we read, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And in Proverbs 16, we read, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. In Proverbs 18, we read, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits or a lesser-known proverb from a Jewish sage that is not in our, our, our usual Bible, Sirach 27, uh, when a sieve is shaken, the refuse appears. So do a person's faults when he speaks. The kiln tests the potter's vessels, so the test of a person is in his conversation. Its fruit discloses the cultivation of a tree, so a person's speech discloses the cultivation of his mind. Do not praise anyone before he speaks, for this is the way people are tested. Flowing from his own intellectual tradition and his own now faith in Jesus Christ, James seems to be teaching us something about our speech. Uh, two things that I want to point out, um, primarily that our speech, that there's a symbiotic relationship between our speech and the world around us, and there's a symbiotic relationship between our speech and our souls between our speech and our souls. As we're starting with the first one of those, James says, he actually uses some pretty strong language to get at this. He says uh, in verse five, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, setting on fire the entire course of one's life. Our words do something in the world, James says. They do something, they create something. We are made in the image and the likeness of God, the God who created the entire cosmos, you and me, with his words, let there be, God says, and there was. 
let there be, and there was. And it's in the image of our God that we have the dignity. God grants us the dignity and the capacity to actually shape things in our world, not only with our hands, but also with our words. Our words create something. Our words do something. I think we saw that earlier this week as well. I was talking to a friend about the school shooting in Texas last week, and I, I, I think it goes without saying that my heart aches for um, the victims, the survivors, their families, for essentially everyone involved. I think we're all pretty rattled by, by what unfolded there. Um, and so I was talking to this friend, and um, we were trying to think through like how best to speak about something like this. And um, I said at one point, you know, I haven't done enough digging into this yet, but I'm intuiting. Um, that the gunman was, you know, a young, young male who was socially isolated, socially outcast, um, was bullied by his peers, and then eventually himself becomes the bully. And um, as it turns out, did a little bit more digging, read a few articles across different platforms, and that's pretty much the case. Um, and it's not even an intuition at this point, it's kind of a pattern, it, it doesn't even feel right to call it that, an intuition. Um, but this young man was bullied in middle school and high school because he had a speech impediment. Um, and also because he didn't have a lot of money, um, and so he didn't wear like very stylish clothes. Sometimes his clothes didn't fit as well, and so his, his, his peers made fun of him. Um, and none of that, none of that in any way absolves him of the responsibility to honor the lives of other people um, any more than does it excuse him for his actions. But there is a point where people actually start to call him a school shooter long before he actually engages in the act. People nicknamed him and mocked him as a school shooter because he looked like the kind of person who would do something like that. Um, he is on the hook for untold carnage and pain and devastation in the lives of real people. Um, that much is for sure. And, and you gotta wonder, if some of the words that were hurled at this young man over the course of his incredibly short life maybe just lit a spark in him, a spark that maybe he fanned into flame himself, but a spark that eventually came to destroy the lives of innocent people and engulf his own life. Our words create something in the world, James says. There's a symbiotic relationship between our words and the world, but also, also between our words and our souls. James continues um, that in the same verse, uh, verse 6, uh, that our words, our tongue stains the whole body and is itself set on fire by hell. Again, very strong language. Uh, it's, all, it's a metaphor. It's an image that he's trying to create. Uh, really strong language. But he says it a little bit differently later in the same chapter. He says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Uh, now, the church has taken quite a few cues from James on this, uh, actually understanding the way in which um, our, 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 our words and our deeds actually stain the body. They do something to us, uh, and they themselves are a reflection. They are artifacts. They're artifacts of our character, if you will. Uh, the church has taught this for years, that when we do something repeatedly, we form a pattern, or we form a habit, and that habit that we engage in has the power to shape something within us. For example, if we run every day for 40 to 60 days, it's about enough time to create a habit. If we run every day for 40 to 60 days, we become what? Runners, yeah. And over the course of becoming runners, this regular habit of running, um, eventually that running starts to shape something within us. We become, in addition to really sore and injury prone, <laughs> we also become healthier. Our hearts become healthier. Our actions have the ability to shape something within us. 
I've been told about the generosity of the fellowship community um, over the regular course, this regular habit of giving, um, not only to fellowship, but to parachurch ministries and um, nonprofit organizations around. People within this church have become, in addition to simply being regular givers, that practice of giving has shaped generosity as a character trait within the individuals of this church. Our habits, our actions, they do something, they make us something, and they create something within us. Um, and so habits are like that. And sin is also like that. Uh, Rebecca Canondike de Young, she's, uh, by the way, I'm really working on my Dutch pronunciations, but <laughs> so Rebecca Canondike de Young, she is a moral philosopher at Calvin, um, now University, um, and she wrote a book something like 20 years ago uh, that has actually just been re-released as a second edition where she talks about, you know, specifically for Reformed people, for Reformed Christians, the way that uh, bad habits shape our character, um, and also helping us to learn how to name those things, to name those things that are shaping our character in bad ways or in poor ways, so that we can participate in God's work to shape us into Christ um, through this habit, through, through something like virtuous habits or gracious habits. And, and so anyway, um, in her book, she actually names like those seven deadly sins. You probably know them from catechism, uh, but the seven deadly sins that she names, um, James names a couple of them. He calls them, um, he calls them selfishness or sorry, selfish ambition and jealousy. Um, those are the words that James uses uh, to kind of get at essentially what the church has taught for a very, very long time because of thinkers like James, because of the scriptures, uh, essentially that our virtue um, helps us to live and act well and be good people, but vices, corruptive and destructive habits like like jealousy, like selfish ambition, are actually corruptive and destructive. Uh, they actually undermine our good character and our living well. Um, they also undermine our ability to act well, and I would add, to speak well. James, in naming jealousy and ambition and the way that those things show up in our words, helps us to connect some dots by helping us see that our inability to speak the truth in love may not always be a memory lapse. Sometimes it comes from an unwillingness to say the thing that needs to be said when loving God truly and loving our neighbor truly require us to speak up, or what the Christian tradition calls sloth. James helps us to see that sometimes our yelling and our cursing and our belittling of other people might be a symptom of the rage, this, this displaced or maybe even misdirected or just excessive anger that boils over within us. James helps us to see that the gossip and the slander and the backstabbing stabbing might be a symptom of the envy, maybe the jealousy that, that resides within us. James helps us to see that the half-truths that we might tell about ourselves to manage our image or manage other people's impressions of us might be a symptom of the vanity that is, restored, that is stored within us. And underneath all of that, I think, underneath all of that, that the highly critical way that we speak about other people, and, and most often, too, the highly critical way that we speak about ourselves, and maybe even the people that we love the most, flows from mistruths or lies that we believe about both. Because the truest thing about each of us, James reminds us, is that we're made in the image of God. Which means that when God looks at us, he sees himself. And that despite the sin and the brokenness that bu bubbles over within our hearts at times, that he literally moves heaven and earth to restore that image. In Christ, God speaks a word over us, and that word is holy. And then God goes out of his way to shape us, to mold us into the holy thing that he has called us to be. 
the hallowed image that we are becoming in Christ is the craftsmanship of God himself. And our debt to one another, our debt even to ourselves, is that we speak in ways that honor God's workmanship. Even when the person we encounter looks like the messy, tattered construction zone that we would want to avoid. We imitate God when we use our voices to bring out the best in other people. So how exactly do we do this? Um, Adele Calhoun's list is a really great place to start. Um, but there's a smidge more, because as people of grace, we think that this is a little bit more than just simply following a list of rules and doing all the right things and getting enough points to just simply get into the good place. That there's actually some transformational work that God is doing within us. And sometimes our speech is just simply an indicator of where our hearts are and the work that God wants to do within us. And so how do we do this? Well, at the beginning of his letter, James says that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. If anyone lacks wisdom to respond or to speak from moment to moment or in interaction to interaction, he should ask or she should ask God. In this chapter, I think he brings it around full circle. Essentially, the wisdom to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said comes from God. And we seek the wisdom that transforms us at the feet of God so that in every moment in interaction, we sound less like the wisdom of the world and more and more like the wisdom of God. We begin to speak and sing Christ to one another. And this is what it sounds like. James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And there's an endless supply of this mercy and this, this, sorry, this wisdom from God an endless supply for his children, infinitely more than the number of tweets that are sent every year. This is James's ultimate concern, that in a world of endless words and tweets and violence of both physical and verbal kinds, that we're called to be people who intentionally live differently with our actions so that we can become the kinds of people who use their voices to sow peace and grace and righteousness and truth in the world around us and even within ourselves. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you have not only called us your sons and daughters, but that you continue to shape us into the image of your son. And we thank you for the ways that we participate in this, uh, this work, not only with ourselves, but in the, in the lives of other people. That in your hands we are clay and that we are molded we thank you that you've given us the dignity to help in that molding process. And we confess that there are times that we don't participate in that well for ourselves or for other people. But Lord, we pray and we enthusiastically look forward to the ways that we can. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. In our response this morning to how God is speaking to our hearts, I invite you to stand. And we'll sing together um, in praise of the one who is all goodness and all light and all truth. Um, when we don't encounter that in ourselves, Jesus Christ is the only one who can make us new.
sisters in Christ. One final blessing for us this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.